We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek truth. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, honest conversations about faith, doubt, disbelief, and everything in between. I am your host, Sean DeRager. It's been about a year since the last podcast. I've missed you guys. I've missed doing this. I've missed thinking about these types of subjects. So I'm hoping I ease right back into this. Got a great show lined up for you today. We are discussing something by the name of Second Naivete. I have a couple people lined up to talk to. First, we'll be talking to Michael Harden. We'll be talking to him about uh, a writing that he did called The Second Naivete. And then I'm also going to be talking to Margaret Placentra Johnston. She has something that she's wrote called The Spiritual Development Theory in Everyday Language. So I'm excited to talk to these two people who are versed in this subject and have been thinking about it and writing about it. And then afterwards, Rob Davis is going to be joining me and him and I will be discussing our thoughts on what's called the second naivete. As you're listening to the show, if any questions come up or you have anything you want to discuss as you're listening, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at the AXPX. I would love to discuss this stuff with you as you're listening. If you enjoy these conversations today, you can hear them in in their entirety and uh, uncut. You can become a patron over at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the AXPX and only $1 a month will unlock access to all these interviews and all these conversations uh, completely uncut. And I'm hoping that's a, a really cool resource for you as you start exploring some of these topics. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Let's get right into it. Michael Harden is the author of The Jesus Driven Life and the founder of PreachingPeace.org alongside his wife, Lori Harden. Michael, thank you for joining us on the AXPX podcast. Thank you, Sean. The Clarion Journal of Spirituality and Justice published an excerpt from your, quote, primer on hermeneutics, unquote, uh, called The Second Naivete. Now, I've heard this term discussed before, and uh, you use the model of the five stages of grief to help explain the emotional states that occur during the process of shifting from what you call the first naivete uh, to the second naivete. Can you go ahead and, and bring our listeners through this? From first naivete, you go to critical distance, and then you go to second naivete. It's it's a three-step process. I first discovered this reading Paul Recur back in the 1980s. I was um, uh, in Chicago at the time in seminary, and uh, uh, I don't recall how I found Recur, but at any rate, I, I read everything that I could find on him or, or by him, rather, and then on him. And it's Recur that argues that um, philosophy has 
come through these three stages of first naivete, where we just believe what the gods say or believe what the church says or or mythology. Um, then we, we move into critical distance. This is kind of like the enlightenment. We're moving out of this archaic or medieval mentality where we submit to this arbitrary divine authority. We begin to reason for ourselves. Uh, you think of Kant's great dictum, uh, dare to think, you know, um, uh, the whole project of the enlightenment with the two great, uh, mortal enemies, Voltaire and Rousseau now sowing their seeds that we're just harvesting here, uh, in the 21st century. Holy cow. <laughs> it's an amazing journey. And, and you move from this critical distance where human reason is, is the primary arbitrator to kind of a, what recur now calls a second naivete where you're able to engage mythology as these expanded uh, symbols, but that are actually communicating the transcendent. He has a whole thing around this. I mean, it's, it's an amazing philosophy, but what, what I did was I began to see it in terms of the shift from what I do. You're exactly right. What I went through as an early fundamentalist evangelical when I was 18, 19, 20 years old to discovering the historical critical method and critical theology, uh, in, in, uh, around 1977. And, uh, and, and then what that did to me and where it left me, particularly as a pastor in the early nineties, you know, I, the, I was caught between two worlds, this kind of this mythological God says that I believe that that settles it world of first naivete and also this world of critical distance where I had a million questions about the Bible and theology and everything else. And I, I could not put everything together. I just couldn't do it. And I crashed and burned in the ministry as a result. I found I thought that was terrible, and I found since that this break from evangelicalism has actually I've had a number of folks share with me that it's actually sent them to um, choose psychiatric care, in other words, to commit themselves because the break was so intense. And that got me really to thinking about the investment um, that we make emotionally in our worldviews, the investment that we make in uh, in authority. Uh, what it means to radically break from that, the intense fear that one first feels when one breaks from that, because now one is on one's own, you know, and uh, there is no divine transcendent authority telling one how to live. So it's kind of like, ooh. Um, but then, you know, if one begins criticizing everything, everything, you know, and, and, and pretty soon one is looking at Christianity going, fake news, fake news, you know, <laughs> tweeting out 140 characters in the middle of the night or something. Yes, um, yes there, was, there was no pun intended there or was there. <laughs> um, at any rate, you know, you, you have this shift and then, and then people dwell there. They, they go read John Spong, they read Bart Ehrman, you know, they read these Jesus seminar, um, uh, Jesus historians, and they, they, you know, in other words, instead of going to the Christian bookstore and reading fundamentalist literature, they go to Barnes and Noble and they read this hyper speculative literature. And they, honest to God, they think that's that's real scholarship. And then they're comfortable out there in this desert land where they have no spirituality, no real hold on life. They have nothing. They're they're frustrated. They're upset. They're angry. They're bored. But they won't move. They think that the only shift they have to make is from this fundamentalism to this, like, I'm a human being, I'm rational, I don't need to believe in God, that's all bullshit kind of thing. They never see the importance of becoming a whole person again. In other words, they're treating what should be a road as a rest stop. 
that's where essentially liberal Christianity has ended up uh, pretty much. Um, progressive Christianity is really struggling. It's, it's um, in our country, and, this, and I'm speaking only about America right now when I use evangelical fundamentalist or anything. I'm only talking about America. Um, but progressive Christianity is, again, you, you, when you attend a progressive Christian church, what do you walk away? Everything's a mystery. <laughs> it's okay. Great. You know, um, at some point there has to be something. And so we have to ask much deeper questions than we're already asking about the relationship uh, of this journey that we take. Um, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a liberating journey all the way. And we can, whenever we find ourselves stuck at that point, we need to say, this is not where I should be. I need to move on. It's just like the grieving process. You know, when you lose somebody you love, first thing you do is you you go immediately numb. You might as well have drunk a bottle of Jack Daniels because at that point you can't feel anything because if you do, you'll die. And that's how it feels when you first lose your faith. It's just like you, you just, you're afraid you're going to die. You're going to burn in hell, all that, the kind of stuff that goes with that. And then you move to denial. You know, then, then of course you've got anger and then you've got bargaining. I mean, and all these stages are mixed up, you know, they're, and you know, they're not, they're not uh, linear, they're fluid, but at some point one looks at one's life and says, I only have a choice. I can either be in a rut or I can be in a groove and it's all about how I treat it. And so you, you, you make that choice to move again and, and to move forward. When does the second naivete come into play? Is it uh, in conjunction with acceptance, or is that just kind of the catalyst that moves you into the, the second naivete? The first time it's going to happen is when when you've broken from first naivete. So you move into acceptance. The critical distance is where you're at. You're no longer in the church. You're no longer a Bible believing, Bible thumping, fundamentalist, evangelical, charismatic. You're not. You're not in the crazy world anymore. You accept that. But if you if you if you remain there the rest of your life without recognizing, you know, okay, so now I'm here, but what else is out there? If you don't make that move, you'll never, you, you, like I said, you'll just end up bored. You'll end up frustrated. You'll end up, um, kind of the French have a term, uh, that I think really applies to an awful lot of liberal spirituality. And the term is ennui, and it, it means total boredom. But if you can imagine driving into a cul-de-sac or a dead end, and they're just driving in circles around the dead end trying to go, how do I get out? How do I get out? How do I get out? You know what I mean? That's ennui. And that's a lot of liberal Christian uh, experience out there right now. Uh, the fundamentalists, on the other hand, they're zealots. Mm-hmm. And the evangelicals, they're hardcore believers that God is a vampire. God's sacrificial. God wants blood. Uh, their God is two-faced, and that's what we've left behind. And so we're, we've just got to keep moving forward. Here's the, the key for me is when you when you leave critical distance and come into second naivete, the first thing is that the ability to hold faith and reason together is to recognize that they have two completely different functions in life. They really do. Reason has to do with the ego. Faith has to do with the deeper self. This is something most people just simply do not get because what they try to do is toss reason uh, and replace it with faith or they they try to reason their way to faith and neither can be done. Uh, The tossing of of reason and just blindly believing is is absurd. I mean, that's that's what is that's essentially um, 
being a zombie. You might as well just toss your brains. And that's why I tell people, well, if the zombie apocalypse ever happens, Christians will be the only ones to survive because zombies are looking for brains, you know? (laughs) So, so the other thing is, you know, you, you try to reason yourself to faith. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely impossible. If in fact, what most religious traditions assert in one form or another is that faith comes by revelation. It's God's act. God creates the encounter. God creates the uh, reality. God creates the relationship and that relational reality that one experiences is termed as one of faith. So you, I think it's, it's important to have these distinctions in mind as one is thinking through these things. Um, but again, I do think that the, that the universe or God is, uh, you know, for, for me, of course, as a Christian, that's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But however you choose to identify transcendence, I think the beautiful thing is the universe does listen to the heart that seeks truth and love and life and light. Um, that one doesn't have to be a specific uh, religion in order for, for God or the transcendent or the universe, however you choose to, to identify the source of reality, to respond. I, I, I am absolutely persuaded now at almost 60 years old um, that the universe loves love mm-hmm. and uh, loves light and loves peace. And um, our task is not to try to figure out why there's evil in the world. And our task is to continue to sow the seeds of love because they will bloom, or as Rob Bell said, love wins. And that is the gospel, end of story. Love does win. So you have a website or an organization called Preaching Peace, and you guys are uh, gearing up for... Uh, for something called the Gospel of Peace uh, and the Peace of the Gospel in November. And so tell me about a little bit about uh, preachingpeace.org and then the things that you guys have going on there. Yeah, Preaching Peace uh, was a nonprofit that Lori and I, my wife and I, began back in 2007. We had, had been working on the website since about late 2002, where I was just writing commentary for clergy from the perspective of mimetic theory and peacemaking, Rene Girard's mimetic theory and Anabaptist kind of peacemaking approaches. And uh, we started running events and uh, publishing books. And um, I began speaking tours uh, around the U.S. Eventually that led to a long uh, international tour in uh, 2012, five months on the road in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.K. And we've just grown. We've been a mom and pop shop until this year. And this year we're about to hire six employees if all goes well, if all goes well. Um, this is where I really wished I was a Calvinist, Sean. I really <laughs> wish I could pray to a Deus Ex Machina. Come, bless me, make me rich, you filthy bastard in the sky. You know, something like that. So, yes. Um, I hope that's not offensive. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, um, no, um, but, but we are, we are, we've two new endeavors in addition to the, to preaching peace and all the things we do there, uh, with our videos and podcasts and everything else. We've st- we have our first uh, major big conference. Uh, we've rented out the Santa Fe Convention Center in New Mexico this November 2nd through 4th. And what I did was I sat down and I said, who do I know that I can, the best of the best that I can bring? And I wrote 
all these uh, invitations out, and we had a few no's, and that was expected. That's, but man, the lineup for that thing: Richard Rohr, Brian McLaren, Doug Campbell, Stan Hauerwas, Nadia Boltz, Weber, Danielle Schroer, Diana Butler, Bass. Um, did I say Doug Campbell, Stan Hauerwas? Who else? I mean, it's 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 an incredible lineup. It's incredible. And then there are breakout session speakers, about twenty of them. Uh, and almost every, well, I'm going to guess a, a good two thirds of the, um, uh, contributors, you know, are masters or PhD level. Um, they're experts in their field. We've got, uh, great music. We've got the many, um, uh, they're a fantastic, most intriguing, uh, progressive Christian artist. Uh, they're, they're, they are, they, they incorporate any number of liturgical type of things into their, their, um, Musical production is it's very good stuff. On Friday, we got Dar Williams, man. Uh, I mean, she's a phenomenal singer-songwriter. And then on Saturday, we're bringing in Gunger. Nice. And so we've got that. And then we've got the School of Peace Theology, which started uh, here just this last week online. And we've got uh, some tremendous, tremendous teachers that are be teaching these little six-week courses uh, from uh, Pete Enns, uh, James Allison, Robin Perry, Sharon Baker, Jimmy Clark Souls, Greg Boyd, uh, George Dunn, Sharon and Keith Putt both. Um, gosh, Matt Hewitt will be there. Jay Phelan will be there. There's just Jonathan Souter. There's so many great instructors in this thing. Our goal is to educate the Christian public that's sick and tired of the bullshit from Christianity and wants to engage the best possible scholarship at a level they can understand. So we're bringing these top quality scholars and we're saying, talk to our folks, you know, teach them, essentially teach adult Sunday school for us. And then we'll eventually we'll add intermediate courses in advanced and we've got uh, Greek and Hebrew and different things, you know, so that regular folks, if they want, can get a good solid education rather than indoctrination. There's a lot more resources over at preachingpeace.org. You also have a handful of books that you've written, uh, the one that I stumbled across, and it, it looks like it's free since I'm a Amazon Prime and Kindle uh, reader, so I'll have to check it out. It's called The Jesus Driven Life, Reconnecting Humanity uh, with Jesus. So I'm excited to uh, to read that. <laughs> one theologian compared it to Luther's 95 Theses, and two <laughs> Bonhoeffer scholars compared it to Bonhoeffer's Discipleship written for the 21st century. Well, nice. It was good company to be placed with. Yeah, I was honored was honored yeah michael uh harden thanks for chatting with me and i'm sure we'll be chatting again in, in the near future thank you sean we're talking with margaret placentra johnston and she has written a couple books faith beyond belief and rx for spiritual myopia the reason why I wanted to get Margaret on the show was because I had stumbled across her uh, spiritual development theory. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me and talking uh, with us a little bit about this. Thank you, Sean. I'm delighted to speak with you. Let me say there's two disclaimers. One is that we cannot use these stages to judge an individual so you don't go reading about the stages and say yeah my mother-in-law she's a lawless you know you just don't do that um it's not fair there's no point that nothing to be gained by that the second disclaimer is that no one of us belongs to any one of these stages completely 
It's a little bit like using the word optimist versus pessimist. You know, most of us have a tendency towards either optimism or pessimism, but on a given day, we might be the other one. You know, we might be more pessimistic when we're usually an optimist. We may trend more in one direction over time, or, you know, it just, it, so no one, same thing with these stages. No one is absolutely at that faithful level. Trust that no one is 100% lawless. Having the terminology, like having the terminology optimist versus pessimist, helps us understand something important about ourselves. And I think so do these stages. Just having the words teaches us something important without um, being something by which we judge people or categorize people. I like to start speaking about the stages using, starting with the second one, because that is the most um, predominant stage, or it is the way religion is portrayed in our society and at the explicit level. So when you hear about someone who has beliefs, okay, they've read the Bible or they've listened to their preacher and they believe everything they said or everything they read, that's the faithful level. And they're characterized by certain traits. They tend to be very group-oriented. In other words, they get their authority from belonging to a particular group, a religion. Or it doesn't even have to be a religion. It could be their political party. But they do so in a pre-critical way. So they're just accepting the authority of what their group told them. That's sort of normal as an adolescent stage but or a pre-adolescent. But eventually you have to own your own beliefs. And that's how you mature. So the next stage beyond faithful is the rational. It's the third. I'll talk about the first one at the end. I, I like to save that for the end. So the first, the second stage is faithful. The third stage is rational. And these are the people who've gone through that critical uh, questioning stage where they've decided, you know, they've started questioning the beliefs they were taught by their tribe, and they've decided either to own them or disown them or decide which ones to own or disown. So we call these people critical. They're not pre-critical like the faithful. They're critical in that they have thought through these things. Um, and then the third stage, the fourth stage is the, um, I'm going to use the term unitive. In my, in my first book, I used the word mystic, but that puts people off, I think. So the unitive stage is, um, is, is these people are kind of circling back. They've gone through that rational st stage. You know, they've trusted their human reason. They've, you know, d distanced themselves from group belief systems, and, and they become more individualized. But at, at the fourth level, they have, they're sort of circling back towards some realizations that there's something connecting us all or there's some spiritual reality or there's some things cannot be sliced and diced up by the rules of science. You know, there's, there's other things going on. There's human intuition. There's, you know, spiritual experiences, personal experiences, things like that. So they become more tolerant, more open-minded, um, and more, we call the word unitive, meaning that they're, they relate to a larger part of the universe than just their tribe, you know, not just people of a certain religion or certain race or certain political party, but at that unitive level, they sort of see everyone as being connected, including like animals and nature and even the spirit level, things we can't see and hear directly. So, again, faithful, rational, unitive are the three upper stages. In order to understand the faithful stage and why they cling so tightly to those um, beliefs is is important to understand the first level, which is the lawless. Now, apparently, I'm not a developmentalist, but apparently in 
childhood, in early childhood up to about age seven, it's normal to be in this lawless stage. In other words, you're just, you, you think it's all about you. You're very, um, we call it egocentric. Um, the whole, everything is about getting around once and wishes filled and, and you really don't relate that much to other people. Or you relate, but I mean, you don't think of their needs or their concerns. So you are egocentric. These people, I call them lawless because they feel that the rules of society don't really apply to them. They're kind of manipulative. Their lives tend to be fairly chaotic. So um, I'm going to keep it brief and just go through a little summary. So when you look at the lawless level, they are egocentric, meaning that to them it's sort of like it's all about me. That's their mantra. The faithful level is ethnocentric. It's all about my group. Okay, the rational level is um, it's, it's, it's world centric. So in other words, they relate to like everyone in the world and things we can see and feel and touch like even animals in nature to some extent. So they, they're world centric and their mantra is like we are the world. We are part of the whole world. And then at the unitive level, it's even more broader worldview than that. So we went from egocentric to ethnocentric to world centric. What could it possibly be that the uh that the unitive level is including in their worldview that, that the others are not, and that is the things we can't see and hear and feel, uh, information that comes from the spirit level, so to speak. Whatever form it comes to them, you know, it, it, there's all different possibilities. Some of them use the word God, some of them don't. Some of them say we're all connected, we all are one. Some of them don't use that terminology. But the point is they all have a, an appreciation of something larger than just literal beliefs, and their information comes to them from somewhere other than out, outside authorities. And so that unitive level is sort of corresponds in my mind to that second naivete that Paul Ricoeur um, described. When did you start exploring this development theory and I guess why did it interest you? Yeah. Why? That's a really good question. <laughs> I guess I started, I had first heard about it, I read um, the works of M. Scott Peck um, from long ago, maybe 19, I might have read it around the 1990s, very early 90s. And he had described these stages of spirituality that he had discovered in his practice of psychotherapy. Hmm. Um, and so I was, I was kind of you know, the first three stages that he spoke of made a lot of sense to me. He spoke about the lawless people who are not guided by anything but their own will. And then he spoke about, uh, he didn't call them lawless, I'm sorry. He called them chaotic and antisocial. And then there's this second stage, which I call the faithful. And he called it, um, I forget what word he used, but they were people who were just kind of literal believers and they just kind of accept everything that their pastor or the Bible tells them, you know, in a kind of unquestioning way. And I saw that, you know, I was brought up uh, Catholic. I went to, um, I think it was 18 years of Catholic school, if you can believe that, <laughs> through graduate school. Um, and I had gone through this, you know, just accepting everything I was taught. And then the next stage after that, the third stage, um, the Peck described was the rational stage, where the person kind of starts questioning, you know, they run up against uh, some issues of what we call cognitive dissonance, where they uh, their church is telling them one thing and the real world out there is telling them something else 
and and they sort of try and reason through do they really want to own the beliefs they hold or they want to modify or perhaps reject them so I was at that you know flag waving card carrying you know rational stage I had rejected everything I had been taught about the Catholic Church and then I read about the fourth stage and I about fell out of my chair um, Peck was describing this other stage where people have gone through the stages, the prior stages, and then they sort of circle back around to some type of faith. <laughs> and so I was astounded to learn of the existence of this type of faith. It's something like what uh, you just mentioned, the second naivete. Um, that's a term that comes from Paul Ricoeur, who was a French philosopher, and he used the stages first naivete, and then a critical distance, which is sort of a, that rational stage where you kind of distance yourself from what your tribe has taught you. And then the second naivete, which is kind of that coming, circling back to some type of faith. So anyway, I was, I was flabbergasted to hear about this. <laughs> and um, I just rejected it entirely for years. I mean, it's like, that's ridiculous. you know. Um, but then I started coming across other works by other authors also describing these same stages, but different terms and different numbers of stages. And, you know, but you're, they're all, um, all pointing in the same direction towards this more um, unified type of faith that's not so literal, but, you know, accepting of some type of spiritual reality. So, uh, you know, I just let that sit for many years. I'm just sort of stewing about this. Do I believe it? Do I not believe it? Is there, is there another, is this second naivete thing possible? Is this fourth stage really possible? Um, and the more I read, the more I found all these different authors that all said the same thing. And uh, I don't know where you stand politically, but <laughs> for me, the election of 2004 drove me up a wall. Um, that faithful level was um, just, you know, like the, the religious right, they were just being so divisive and so hateful and so, you know, righteous and we're right and everyone else is wrong and if you're not a Christian, you can't be a good person. And I just got so fed up. I said, someone has got to set this record straight. <laughs> so I, I had just at the time sold my professional practice. Um, by profession, I'm an optometrist. And my children had gone off to college and my responsibility level went from breakneck crazy to, you know, very easy. And I thought, well, you know, I have the time, I have the knowledge, I have the writing skills. I will write this book <laughs> that kind of, you know, to lay out these stages in terminology that the average person could understand. Because if you try to read Paul Ricoeur, well, like, good luck. <laughs> it's really complex. And then the other, another one uh, of the theorists that I refer to is James Fowler. I mean, brilliant, brilliant work that he did, but... It took me 10 years to understand that book. I mean, to give you some idea how, you know, I'm not so, it doesn't correlate with most people's everyday experience, but as soon as you understand what he's saying, it's like, oh, of course. So that's how I got interested. In, and it was just through happenstance that I kept running across these books. I guess it was happenstance, or maybe <laughs> it wasn't. But, um, and I suddenly felt called. I felt it's my job to write something that will, you know, sort of modify these strident voices of that faithful level that are actually harmful. They're creating harm in our society today. Um, and so I'm trying to just modify those voices. Uh, if you're listening and you want to dive more into this, go to uh, mpjauthor.com. There's a link right there that says Spiritual Development Concept. It's a really great thing to kind of look through and, and read through. 
your book, Faith Beyond Belief, was that the first book you wrote dealing with these concepts? Yes, that was the first book. And in that book, I used, um, I figured, you know, I am not a um, theologian, not a sociologist. So in order to gain authority for the concept I was trying to describe, I used the um, two real life examples from two, two stories from real life people I interviewed, and I showed them going through these stages, passing from, say, faithful to rational, and then there's four stories like that, and then there's six stories of people who have sort of um, appropriated that unitive level and how they they got there. And then then I went on to describe all the theorists um, on whose work I had based what I was writing. Your next book, uh, Rx for Spiritual Myopia, is in the works. So that's actually not printed yet. I mean, it's I'm still editing and I'm still looking for a publisher. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what's the idea for for this book that you're working on? The idea behind that is um, a little bit more broad. And it incorporates the idea of the spiritual development theory from Faith Beyond Belief, the first book. But it's actually a bigger picture that I think most of our conventional society is particularly myopic in their spiritual view. So I'm an eye doctor, okay? okay. Myopia means nearsightedness. <laughs> so people are focused too much on their own, you know, little experience and they don't appropriate spiritual information that comes from a larger uh, context. So looking at the larger context, we have to realize that over time things have been changing Um, through globalization and the internet and all that. We're all connected to people of all different nationalities and all different religions. Um, Information about religion has become extremely democratized. You can look up any religion you want and study it with a click of a mouse. Um, you probably have someone next door to you who's not of your same religion or not of your same nationality. So we're being exposed to all these different perspectives and, and therefore remaining in our provincial, isolated you know, religions, uh, seeing that as the only spiritual truth there is, is, is very, very myopic, I feel. And I think we need to open up our understandings to something more broad. And kind of that's what that book is about. What would your advice be to someone who has is starting to search, trying to look outside their social or their religious circle? What would your advice be to somebody who's kind of starting to get in a searching mode? I, w- I would go out and talk to people from different cultures and different religions and just see how they line up with what you believe. If you don't have people like that available, just go on the Internet and click, you know, Hindus or <laughs> Buddhists or whatever. You'll find plenty of people to talk to or blogs to read or whatever um but it's in comparing you know that all these cultures have these religious things that you start to realize well there can't be just one right religion i mean what would be the chances if there were only one right religion when you think about it down through all the ages and all the different religions there what are the chances that you would have been born into the right one Mm-hmm. The only right one. Yeah, the chance is not high, right? So we got to start looking for bigger answers. Margaret, thank you so much for talking to me uh, about these ideas and in your books. Um, you can, again, mpjauthor.com is Margaret's website. And um, there's a lot of great information on there. Check that out and, uh, and check out her b- book, which is currently available called Faith Beyond Belief. Margaret, thanks again for joining me. Thanks, John. It was enjoyable speaking with you. Thanks so much.
So for this portion of the episode, Rob Davis has joined me. And Rob, you were actually on the last podcast episode over a year ago. So we ended with you and we're starting with you again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I... Uh, privileged. You should. <laughs> you really should. So when I threw out the idea that I was going to, for some reason, start up this podcast again and start using this uh, dusty portion of my brain, uh, you threw out some suggestions and one of them was this thing called the second naivete. So I'm wondering why this was one of the first things that kind of popped up for uh, for us to chat chat about. Yeah, I think um, I've I've definitely I'm definitely not an expert in that topic, and mm-hmm. um, I've I've read all kinds of different perspectives on what that means and different ways that people have approached that. Um, you know, including the two people that you interviewed and then also some others like Richard Rohr and, um, you know, even somebody like Ken Wilber, um, just a lot of, uh, different people kind of generally talking about the same thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I mean, my understanding being, you know, the, like everyone goes through general kind of stages or phases in their quote unquote spiritual life or spirituality. Um, and I think just, you know, being out of the church now for man, how long, seven, over seven years. Um, I've definitely, uh, I feel like I've come to that point of like a, a second naivete of, um, you know, I find a lot of things about religion and theology, spirituality, really interesting, but I have literally zero, um, you know, vested interest in any of it, um, which is (laughs) a really weird place to be. (laughs) Um, so what I, I think I've seen is, you know, a lot of the, the people that I've known over the years who have walked away from the church, they're, they're kind of in a, a really similar place where, um, you know, you, you've gone through those stages of grief of, um, letting everything go and really, you know, kind of giving that whole thing, a, a proper burial and then mm-hmm. kind of moving on and, um, you know, some of my friends that I think are still in kind of the, the, um, the, I don't, I, I don't know the right language to use about this. <laughs> no, and, and, that, and that's fine. And, and that's, <laughs> well, and that's why I wanted to kind of open up with these, you know, basically like theologian and scholars, right. And give us the almost high level description, right. But then you right. and I can lay down the bullshit, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. how we interpret all that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really hard to not, um, to not be condescending whenever you're talking about either people who are still kind of in, you know, a, you know, fundamentalist church or, um, even a more kind of evangelical 
thing. Um, cause you know, being out of it for so long, there's so many things that, that we all experience that we know were unhealthy and all those things. Um, and so trying to be, uh, empathetic and not judge people, but also be like honest about, you know, this is, this is really not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for, you know, humanity, uh, mm-hmm. for these things to continue the way they are. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm learning how to deal with that. Um, yeah. especially with family members and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've talked about this before with my own, with my own journey. And it's funny cause like I'm, I'm trying to think, I tried to listen to the last time you and I talked and I was like, I hope we don't tread similar grounds. If we do, that's fine. But I, I think in this context, you know, it's, it's good to kind of, uh, reiterate like where we've been. And, you know, when I basically walked away from my upbringing of Christianity, it was, and just what, um, Michael Harden had described, like you go through this extreme, you know, almost depression because you've, you've given everything up that you, that you knew. And it took me a while because I think everyone has to go through it. You have to kind of purge all the stuff. You have to be angry. And I think it's all part of that process. But if you don't allow yourself to move through these steps and, and know, if you don't know what you're thinking or if you don't know what you're looking for, then it can get very frustrating and very confusing. And you can be in this one path for a very long time, which I, which I feel like I was, I feel like a couple of years, any, anytime my wife brought up religion, anytime any, if anyone brought up religion, I would just almost, my eyes would glaze over and I just wouldn't even want to talk about it. Yeah. And I would have like an anger and I would almost want to come back with some sarcastic remark and kind of, uh, burn their bridge or, you know, burn their belief down by some smart ass remark or something like that. And, you know, and it, for a while, I feel like that is healthy, but you have to be able to move yourself past that and in through these steps and understand. I think if I would have had an understanding and, um, uh, of, of these steps, I think I probably would have been a little, would have been a little more of a healthy transition. But, but now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still in very critical to organized religion. But yeah, there's that part of my brain that I can't turn off that I'm always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about spirituality and things. I'm thinking about, you know, who God is, what God is, and and where I find what I believe to be God in my life. And it's a whole different is it's it's a whole different scenario than before I threw away my faith. And it's a it's a different scenario from when I was kind of fine with not having any faith at all. Right. If that makes any sense. But I think a lot of people are stuck in that anger, like, and they almost turn into a fundamentalist in their own right, you know, trying to get people to come down, come not, not down to their level. That's the wrong thing to say, but to, to meet them face to face and kind of, uh, tear down their belief. And you almost want to, you go through that where you want people to just trash what they believe and, and, and just understand what you're trying to say. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And even, you know, I've, I've definitely been through that phase of like, you know, I don't believe in God and you shouldn't either. And it's <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, well, it's, 
it's like your opinion, man. Like, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> there's uh, no, <laughs> of all the theology and philosophy that I've studied, um, no one, no one has an objective answer to that kind of question. So we're all in the area of speculation and to really um, hedge your bets on whether God exists or God doesn't or what God is or who God is or uh, what God is like or whatever um, seems a bit, um, I don't know, immature to me. Like, Like, uh, it's a, it's a really important and interesting question, but, um, yeah, I, I, you know, if the, if the fundamentalists aren't right, then, um, there's a lot of conversation to be had rather than, um, anyone, you know, kind of owning the answer to, those kinds of questions um yeah yeah no i i feel like more and more people are being open and honest about these conversations and kind of going through this i actually went out for drinks with a a couple that i had met in an, an older church that i would go had gone to and um the wife had really helped my wife uh through a really hard time with some postpartum depression. So it was almost like we needed to be in that church at the time. We met them, really helped my wife, and we've become, you know, pretty good friends. But with everything, I kind of, you know, backed off a little bit because I knew them from the church. And we actually went out for drinks with them the other night and had a blast. And we're able to talk with them openly and honestly. My wife has is now having some frustrations with the church and, and organize, you know, Western organized religion and she's kind of seeing the seams, you know, the seams are are showing on the church services and things like that. So she's having some things that she needs to talk out. She's like almost going through this. She's dealing with a lot better than I did. That's for sure. But the fact that we were able to sit down, order some, a a couple uh, old fashions and you know, the, the, the ladies had some uh, really good wine and we we had, we had a few too many and we were able to, to talk about all this stuff was huge. It was almost like uh, therapeutic for me, like something that I needed a long time because I had distanced myself from them and didn't really want to talk to them about this stuff because I was like, oh, they're, you know, they're involved in the church. They're, you know, they're going to be coming, they're going to be very defensive because it's something that they deal with every single day and the, the people, but um, they voice like the same kind of frustrations and they were very sympathetic to, you know, where my wife and I are at. And yeah. like, that was huge. So it's almost like if you don't, and they'd kind of known what I've been going through just off like Facebook posts and things like that. And, but they had never approached me. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why it just kind of worked out where they finally, you know, where our paths are kind of crossing again. So, I mean, you, if you're not open and honest about what you're feeling, you may never run into somebody or have these conversations, you know? And it was, uh, it was really cool. And I don't, you know, and they, they're still involved in that church. They see, they see the, the faults in it, but they're connected with the people. And I think that they're hoping that their, um, their transparency will hopefully help others that are 
kind of going through the same frustrations. But I would have never known that if I would have just kept distancing myself and not wanting to talk with uh, someone that I knew from, you know, I guess my, my, uh, you know, Christian past. Yeah. Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, especially like, like we still live in the, the city where, where I was a, you know, staff deacon of a pretty large church here. Um, so I knew a couple thousand people by name. Um, so you, you know, you randomly run into people and one of the more difficult parts of kind of walking away from that was, was the lack of those people who really reached out and tried to figure out what happened, why I left all of that. Um, so that, you know, I think that was a, um, part of that grieving process was like, like, man, I, I used to know all these people and now Mm -hmm. like, I don't communicate with any of them. And when I run into them, it's super awkward and they don't even ask what happened. Like they probably assume the worst and, um, Oh, there's that Satan worshiping Rob. He's probably going to buy himself some goat blood. Right. Yeah. Like it's, um, it's, it's weird. Um, so, um, you know, now being kind of seven years removed from that, it's definitely just kind of accepted it. Um, but it, it, I, I wish that more, more kind of evangelical, um, conservative-ish churches could find a way to not um, just not do that to people when mm-hmm. when they start having questions, when they even when they walk away that, you know, people would still you know, at least remain friends and, you know, stay in contact with people um, even you know, not like the whole bait and switch thing, but just, just to have, just to know like, Hey, this is going to be really hard on them to walk away. I should really be there as a friend and, you know, see how they're doing. Um, yeah. Well, one interesting example, I mean, I've seen this on, on, uh, on sides of even just standard grief when, when my brother-in-law passed away, I mean, it's been 10 years. The The wound is still there with my wife's family. It's a tough subject, which is, you know, which, uh, which I get. And when, when, when that happened, when he passed away, it's, it totally caused like this rift within her family. Like people didn't come around anymore because they just didn't know how to even talk to my in-laws and, they didn't know how to bring it up and they just distanced themselves and it's been 10 years and they're still distant. And it's like, if they would just open up and just be there and be loving and friends and be there when my, you know, my mother-in-law or my father-in-law just break down and cry off of one, you know, the, my, my father-in-law will see a, a cookie or a candy that reminds him of his son and he'll just break down. It's fine. Like, like, but it's, but People, for some reason, don't know how to handle that, and they just kind of back off. And I don't know how, you know, I I don't know if it's a society thing. I don't know. But 
so seeing that it happens in kind of a secular arena with something like death and and families and things like that, it, you think about it in the church context, it makes sense. Or I'm, I'm assuming people just don't know how to even approach it. Maybe they think that you're going to get angry. Maybe they think that, you know, maybe they think you don't want to be around them. They take it personally. So right. um, I always made it a point whenever I saw people were, who I knew from the church and everything to just smile and ask them how they're doing and, you know, and it just let them know that I'm all right, you know, just, just by having a casual and open conversation and, and not, you know, it, it's almost like we're the ones kind of going through this shit, but we almost have to be the ones to kind of, uh, bridge the gap <laughs> in a way with, with everyone. It's, it's weird. It's something that I think about all the time and uh, on how people react you know, it's a, I, I don't know what causes it. I just, I, I think it's just people not knowing what to say. And I don't, I, I think most people don't even realize they're doing it or, um, or just kind of, you know, blind or numb to, to what they're doing. And, but then the, but then like nobody wants to talk about it, you know, right. even with my own things with, with, with my wife's family, it's like if everyone would just get in a room for an hour and air all this out, like there would be some healing there if you just communicate. But, you know, we're going on 10 years and it's just, well, a lot of backroom talk, <laughs> you know, about everyone else. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm sure that I think I've done this podcast with you a few times now, but I'm sure I've brought this up at some point. But, you know, over time, I feel like I'm, it's becoming more and more difficult to know the, where to draw the line between a cult and a church. Um, and <laughs> yeah, you no, know, there's, I, I mean, maybe, you know, in any group, there are cult like tendencies and there are things that, you know, individuals do that is uh, very manipulative and all that. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a really hard time trying to figure out like, like, okay, I know, I know, uh, some very specific things are indicative of a cult and, you know, but outside of that, it's just, you know, people being people and being lame and like, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I don't know. I just feel like, man, if I could, if I could go back 15 years when I, kind of started down the path of, you know, working in churches and being involved in all of that. Um, I feel like something I would say, um, knowing what I know now is like, it's like, Hey, you all need to accept right now that over half of these people in this room are not going to be involved in this in the next five to 10 years. You're like, you need to just, deal with that now. And how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to prepare for that? What are you going to do for the people that think, um, that what we're doing here is just terrible and a waste of time and wrong and everything else? Like, how are you going to react to that? Um, because if, you know, 
if a church is supposed to be about loving and caring and taking care of people and um, all of that, how are you going to love those people as they leave? Um, and I don't, I'm assuming that very few churches are having those kinds of conversations, but that's just the reality. Like that's the world we live in that, uh, you know, people are leaving churches in droves and there's not really a lot to help them kind of through that process. Yeah. 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 I, and I think there needs to be more, you know, writings about, uh, about this, or at least, you know, I don't know, like my frustration is when I see someone, you know, have an epiphany about something, they quickly form another group, you know, that is perpetuating this and, um, or some nonprofit or something like that. Um, but I, and I think that's all good, but, um, I feel like the, the internet and, you know, Facebook and all this stuff is in in a way, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword, you know, like it can hurt and it can help. And we're living in an age where, I mean, you can fact check your preacher <laughs> during the sermon. I mean, we saw that during the, the recent debates, you know, where we're, we're fact checking, you know, uh, orange Von Trump as he's talking, you know, and 90% of it is, is just total bullshit. And, but for some reason, like there's this old model that we're, you know, churches and, and people just keep spouting out the stuff and they don't, they don't, I don't know if they realize it or not, but, but I don't know. Um, I guess if we're just open and honest with each other and, 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 and listen to each other, we're fine. We'll, we'll be fine, but that's, but nobody wants to. There's, there's still these, the walls that are up and, uh, I mean, just what I was, did, you know, just going out and, and hanging out with somebody who I thought believed differently. And we, there's, we still do. And, but it's, it's people don't know how to talk to others and converse and fellowship with others who, with different beliefs, everyone wants to just find the person that believes almost exactly what they believe and go hang out with them. And I, and I, you see them when people leave the church, they try to find other people about the church who are angry at the church. They start something over here and they all talk and, and, uh, and then the, you know, another group finds, you know, start studying like hermeneutics and Paul record and, and all the stuff. And they'll go over here and they'll, they'll, they'll create their thing. And, but I, yeah, I guess I guess it's all about being approachable. I'm rambling, but it's about I guess being approachable with this stuff. Yeah, I, I totally. get. Yeah, I get uh, overwhelmed. Like when we were, you know, going back to the second naivete when I was starting to read those links that you sent me and, and everything. I was like, holy shit! Like this is just like a lot of it's over my head. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's good, but it's some it's some you know pretty you got to do some heavy lifting to kind of understand it. And um, what I liked about when I talked to Margaret, she was able to kind of bring it down to kind of the everyday level a little bit, but you know, but you still have to be in that mindset, you know, to, to kind of be thinking about all this. Right. But um, yeah, but, what's uh, funny, um, all the, the years that I spent kind of reading philosophy, like I would, I would try to read, you know, someone like Paul Ricoeur, who's a French philosopher. Mm-hmm. So you're already reading like a translation 
and it's this super obscure language and um you know i think intentionally to some degree obscure so you've got to find like an interpreter and then even the interpreter is hard to understand like <laughs> so uh yeah I, I really appreciate people like like her and someone like Richard Rohr who can take these mm-hmm. um these really abstract um ideas that you know are are worth the effort of trying to understand them and they're you know complicated and there's all these um you know caveats to everything and but um being able to kind of take all that and bring it down a level to someone like me who one I just don't have the patience for it anymore like I'm not going to go read Derrida which I did you know 5 or 6 years ago thought it was the most amazing thing ever and now I'm like <laughs> man I I don't understand that paragraph and I'm over it. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do, I'll do that. I'll try to read something and then I get inter- interrupted by the kids and I'm trying to, just, then I go back to, to try to reading it and then I get interrupted again. And, and after a while I'm just like, I, I'm just, I'm not in the space to do this. Right. You know, maybe when I'm older, I'll have more time. And, and that's cool. Like I'm totally welcome to that. And I think, I think that's the point of, the second naivete is when you're kind of done chasing it so quickly. You know what I mean? Like you're trying, you're, you're, you're patient with having answers come towards you, come to you, or maybe not even come at all, but you're, you're in the, in the headspace or in the mind space where you're okay either way. There's not this ticking time bomb. There's not, uh, you don't have to figure it all out. And, 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 and I think I'm finally at that place where I'm willing to to research stuff, but uh, you know now's not that time. I'm I can't sit down and read Paul Ricoeur right now. Right. You know I I just know I don't even, I don't even know if I'm gonna have time to read some of uh um uh, some of the these some of these links that you sent me that I'm putting in the show notes by the way, but um. You know, like I want to read Margaret uh, Placentra Johnston's book and then I want to read her new book and then I want to read, you know, um, uh, Michael, Michael Harden's book, his books, you know, which seem more approachable. But, you know, even those I'm like, I need to find the time, but I need to not stress about it and be like, you know, what? I'm I'm there. I have them in a stack in a stack right here. I'm going to get to them, but I just need to kind of, you know, know that there's no rush. Right. And if I never figure out, I never figure it out. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, you know, something that I wish some people would have told me when I was younger, that it's really, I think, a sign of maturity that you kind of know yourself when, you know, everything isn't an emergency and everything isn't urgent. And like someone hands you a book, it's not like, you know, oh my God, I have to read this right now. And then once you start reading it, it's like, oh, this changes everything. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pull a Shane Claiborne and move into a commune. And like, so like all those (laughs) things, like there's so many books and lectures and Ted talks and sermons and everything else that could, you know, kind of push you in a very different direction when I think a sign of maturity is like, like, okay, like 
Like that's a really interesting perspective. I'm going to sit on that for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and you know, you, you have to live your life. So, um, you have commitments and you have family and work and all these other things. One thing should not, you know, completely uproot you. Um, that's just really, right. I, I, that stupid verse. Sorry, it's not stupid. I probably just offended somebody. <laughs> uh, that verse about, uh, you know, every wind of doctrine or whatever, just like throwing you off. Like mm-hmm. that just seems, I remember being in that place where it was just like, I have so many questions. I have to get answers to every single question. And it's just, um, this endless, um, I don't know the best analogy, which, um, you know, may not be appropriate for this podcast. I'm not sure, but it's to me kind of like, you know, getting older and being married for almost 18 years. Um, like the difference between like masturbation and making love, like, (laughs) like to me, all my theology was just beating off. Like, like I gotta get this done right now and just get it over with versus like, (laughs) like, Oh, well, uh, this may take an hour rather than like 30 seconds. So, um, that's the perfect analogy. analogy. That's perfect. (laughs) That's fantastic. You're welcome. You need to think of a provocative book title and write a book. Yeah. Yeah, I'll think about that one. Going through spiritual masturbation and moving towards spiritual making love. Yes, I don't know. No, no. I'm sure Rob. Then we need to add like a you know colon, and then we need to add like a sentence afterwards of you know (laughs) to let everyone know what the title means. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely. um, And I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea how old you are, but I'm 36. I'm 39. Oh, okay. Um, the big four yeah, so this year, everybody. Nice. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like the third, like, now that I look back at my 20s, I'm like, well, that was fun. That was exciting. That was, you know, new. And I was um, passionate and whatever. And now in my 30s, I feel like I'm like, I'm just going to chill and you know, take things as they come and I have plans Mm -hmm. and I have goals and all of that, but I'm not so anxious and stressed out and like everything's going to like, like, you know, one little thing is going to like push me over the edge. Um, and that, I don't know, to me, that's a much better place to be. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess, you know, as I kind of wind down here, I think the whole point of like the whole point of, of I guess this conversation and this podcast is like, if, if you're in a spot where you're feeling pressure, if you're feeling, you know, depression, if you've recently changed your belief system or if you've thrown a belief system out, out the window, um, just, kind of put it in your mind that uh, things will get better and it may feel like your whole world is collapsing right now. 
you're losing friends uh, left and right. You don't know who to talk to. Just know that a, a lot of us have been there and a lot of us have gone through it. And there is, you know, in a sense, a light at the end of the tunnel. And you can kind of go through this and don't, I would say, don't let like anger and bitterness, I guess, stay with you. Find a way to purge all that out of your system, which is good. And this is why, so I started this whole podcast was to purge this shit out of my system that was kind of like coming to the surface and it was negatively affecting my marriage, my friends, because I would take it out on the, on, on, you know, on my wife who had a different belief system than me. And I was trying to sort through all this stuff and she couldn't understand it. So find a way to get this stuff purged and know and, and have patience. Just kind of allow yourself to go through it and, if you feel like there's a, a timeline to get things done and to figure things out, you need to throw that out as soon as possible and just kind of almost enjoy the journey and enjoy the process and uh, look as look at you know, track down as many different viewpoints as you can. And, and those will help you kind of formulate where you want to be or where you you know want to go. Yeah, totally. I feel like, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, my advice, I guess would be, you know, let, let all of that happen and find, you know, a couple people, a small group of people to, to kind of process those things with, um, definitely I would not encourage anyone to go out on that journey by themselves. Um, yeah. It's very, uh, isolating and, um, you know, for certain people, they, um, they just can't handle it. And so it, mm -hmm. it becomes deadly for certain people. So, mm -hmm. um, I would, you know, find some good books, find some good, some good people who, who will listen and let you process all your questions and doubts and everything else. And, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I've heard, um, I think it was on Rob Bell's podcast, um, which I don't even know if he still does that. I listened to it. Yeah, he does. A long time ago. Um, but he was talking about people that have kind of walked away from a fundamentalist um, way of thinking, fundamentalist churches, and, and that a lot of times like we'll look back and be like, you know, how the hell could I have thought that way? Or why did, why was I involved with that for so long? And his one piece of advice was really helpful for me where he just said, you know, you need, you need to learn to forgive your former self. Hmm. So, um, you know, through that process as you're like, you're like answering questions you've, you know, never even considered before. Like, you're going to get to a point where you're like, how did I think that the earth was 6,000 years old? Like what, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with me? Like you're going to get to that point. And then you're, I, I think, um, you just have to be like, okay, that, that was where I was. Um, that's not where I'm at now. And I just have to figure out how to let it go and forgive myself. So, um, yeah, that was really helpful for me. Um, thanks Rob Bell. You, um, I don't agree with you on a lot of stuff, but that was helpful. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. Rob, man, thanks for, uh, hanging out. 
and kind yeah, of mulling over this. Thanks for having me on again. Well, that's going to do it for Season 4, Episode 1 of the AXPX Podcast. Hope you guys learned a little bit about Second Naivete. And hopefully you learned um, a little bit more about yourself and how to kind of process some things if you're in a certain stage of your deconstruction or or your faith or, or not. So hopefully this helped you out. You can have access to all the unedited conversations by becoming a patron. It's only a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com slash the AXPX. You can also check out past shows at theaxpx.com and follow on Twitter at the AXPX. I want to thank all of you for listening. Please, if you have any questions, thoughts, anything at all, please let me know. There's a contact form on the website or just drop me a line via social media, Facebook or Twitter. All the music for this episode was composed by the Candle Park Stars. They're very generous with letting me use their music for the intro and outro and throughout the episode. Find all their music over at candleparkstars.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'll talk to all of you next episode.